In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and then the explanation of it in 36 and 43, and then Genesis 2. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his enemies were sleeping, excuse me, his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the wheat, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed? How then do we have, does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he left the crowd and went to his house, and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, that's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age." The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. In Genesis, at the beginning of mankind, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, surely you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. God. You may be seated. And the book of Matthew focuses on the kingdom of God. That phrase is used more in that book than any other book. In the first 12 chapters up to this chapter, Matthew has shown proofs that Jesus is of the genealogy of the line of David, that he will sit on the throne of David. He has told us about the baptism that came supernaturally from the Holy Spirit and God spoke out of heaven when Jesus was baptized and then sent into uh, the desert where he was tempted by the devil. But then he also it then does miracles and he performs healings and he does things that only God can do. In the 12th chapter and right at the end of the 11th chapter, we find that the religious leaders have listened to all of this. They can't explain it. And so the way they explain it is they publicly reject Jesus as the possible Messiah. And they say, you're just doing these things by the power of the devil. 
You are the son of the devil. Word they used as Beelzebub at that time. And Jesus warned them at that point about the unpardonable sin. But at this time, there's a mixed crowd of people. The crowd are whole or afraid of the religious leaders and they're holding back to some extent. But there are two types. There are those who were there simply just to follow out of curiosity and to hope that he might do a miracle and they could see it or maybe that they could eat something that he provided or what have you. And then there were those who came because they were hoping that he was the Messiah and they were really listening intently. And that's why Jesus said, if you've got ears, listen, listen closely. He is using parables to veil the truth for two reasons. Number one, so that those who will not respond are not going to be held even more liable for what they hear because they don't really hear it. But for those who hear it, it will cause a question and they will think about it further. He even says so in the book of Matthew, verse 34 of chapter 13. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables. He did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what, the prophet, what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And earlier he had quoted Isaiah saying, you will keep on hearing but not understand. You will keep on seeing but not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull with their ears. They scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with the heart and return. And I would heal them. In these verses as we come now the parables that Jesus gives are about the kingdom and the mysteries of the kingdom that had not been heretofore revealed and the king is revealing these mysteries so in chapter 13 he begins with seven kingdom parables and in chapter 13 there in the back of your bulletin there's sermon notes and these seven parables are listed out so that you can take notes. There will be an exam um, afterwards. There will be an exam one day, won't there? Um, and as it's laid out for us here, in the first 12 is the king and his kingdom. And now in chapter 13, he reveals seven kingdom parables. There are a couple of more in the other gospels, but these are the ones that, that Matthew is pointing out to us. The first one has to do with the parable of the soils. And it is a parable that the, the kingdom is to bring forth fruit for the king. Now, let me mention, this is the first parable that is given. And these seven parables, four of them are from the human perspective, the position. Three of them are from the divine perspective as he lays these parables out for us. The, the gospels, all of them introduce the parables by this parable the parable of the soils. It's very important uh, in what he does. Matt Frey is going to preach this parable for us next week and unpack all of the pieces of it, the opposition that's found in it, the development of it, and the importance of how the heart 
is what's to be like soil that once it's turned and plowed and ready, it will yield either 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold as the Christian has prepared his heart, you see, for receiving the Word of God. The second parable that's mentioned here is the mustard seed to show that the kingdom is bigger than what we think. It grows from the smallest of seed. When you put a mustard seed in your palm, it's hard to even see, it's so little. And what he's showing here is that the kingdom is gonna grow to giant size from something that is small and come forth in great faith. The next parable is the parable of a yeast or leaven. And the kingdom here idea is that when it's introduced, it's, in, it's intended to, uh, to enter in and permeate every aspect of life, every aspect like yeast does to the dough. Then he gives the parable of the hidden treasure. And from this, we find that the kingdom is the greatest and most valuable thing that we can possibly have centered into our mind and in our thinking. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things that you need in your life, they will be taken care of, but keep the kingdom first. It is of great value. And then he gives the parable of the pearl to show that it was a kingdom so valuable that it was worth sacrificing everything to obtain. And then finally, the parable of the net that the kingdom is one of great diversity as a net draws in all kinds of things from the water, all kinds of things, that the, that the kingdom of God is going to be filled with all kinds of diversity in it. Now we have the kingdom of the tares. Now it's not last in this order, but I put it here so we can put the outline behind it. Um, but the parable of the wheat and tares is always follows the parable of the souls. The reason for that is, is what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a picture of all of human history. That the kingdom of God begins as seeds are planted and great produce and abundant fruit comes from it. But he said then the kingdom is going to end when there's continued fruit being produced, but he is then going to bring everything to justice and bring it all to a close. And amazing thoughts that are given us there. Now, this parable is divided into four parts, as you see on your outline, and then a bottom part there for application. First is the planting of the seeds. Again, like that first parable, the soils, it is part of a kingdom age. And what the kingdom age is about is planting seeds, spreading the gospel for a harvest crop of the kingdom as wide as it possibly can be spread. Jesus was always about this. When he took the, the disciples into Samaria, a place where the disciples thought, well, surely there's no fruit here. And then Jesus brings the Samaritan woman to faith in him. She goes and tells the city, here's a man that told me everything about myself. They come and then they find out that he truly is the Messiah and they believe. And then Jesus says to the disciples, he says, I want you to keep your eyes up because the fields wherever you are are always white under harvest. There is no place in the world that there can't be a white harvest. But notice here 
that he makes a very important statement. He says, a man sowed good seed. The seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. Christ is sowing believers. He is sowing people. Believers are to be sent out with the truth and to continue the sowing of the gospel message. He's raising up people for the kingdom who will continue to do what he has done. And then he says, but while everyone was sleeping, the enemy, and he names him the devil, sowed bad seed. These, he says, are the sons of the evil one, evil people. And they are sowed right in on top of the good seed. Now, this was a, a parable they would very easily understand because literally there was a seed that if you wanted to harm someone, if they'd become your enemy, you would sneak in at night and throw this seed. And it was a rye-like grass called darnel that looked just like the wheat until it got time to sprout ahead. And when it sprouted ahead, it was obvious it wasn't wheat. But it was a plant that was very susceptible to fungus and would turn into poison to men and to animals. It was so significant that the Romans had actually established a law that if anyone did this, they would be thrown into prison. Because that was how you would destroy an enemy, is destroy their ability to make a living. This seed, we need to understand, that there has never been a sowing of God on earth, but that Satan has not sown his seed on top of it. Wherever you go, you will find tares among the wheat. Where there was an Abel, there was a Cain. Where there was a Noah, there was a mocking word. Where there were 12 disciples, there was a Judas. When, how did evil get into the church? By the time the 1500s come around, the church had become so corrupt in the sense it was selling salvation. And the reformers had to step up and get the church or the people of God back on the right track. Even in our century today, how did the Holocaust enter into a civilized Western Europe? Evil people doing evil deeds. In this whole world, Jesus says that even in the church today, there is an intermingling of good and evil. Churches that preach, well, the Bible is not really literally the word of God. It might contain some ideas of God, and so we get good principles for living in it. But it's not actually the word of God. Evil. Evil compared to what God says about his own word. The second part of the parable is the servants ask this key question. Master, didn't you sow good seed? And what they're really asking here is, Master, where did this evil come from? I mean, you sowed good seed, so where does this come from? Now, I want you to note here that they are off base and Jesus, just by the way he explains this, gets them back on track. Because what they notice here is only the evil. 
And Jesus wants them to understand this is a story about the wheat and the tares, not just the tares. Why is it that nobody asks, why is there good in the world? I remember a friend of mine that I worked with said, he said, I knew there was a devil and evil long before I ever knew there was a God. But he said, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And I sensed something was keeping me from living the way I should live. And it wasn't until I found Jesus Christ that I understood there is evil in this world. Always evil in this world. So, Master, do we tear out the bad weeds? I mean, every time you have a garden, there's always weeds, right? And so you weed it, you tear it out. Isn't that what we should do, Master? And the Master says, no, let them be. Let them be. Let them grow together. When the tares grow so closely to the wheat, their, their roots get so intertwined with the wheat. Jesus said, understand that in the world, good and evil are inseparably bound together. The same fire that warms is a fire that will burn. The same water that quenches your thirst is water that will drown. We live in a world of tension because there is both good and evil and they dwell together and it will be so all of our time on earth. Master, why the tares? God, why don't you rid evil? But he says, let them grow together. You see, faith is not believing that we can get what we want to get. Faith is believing what life really is and facing it courageously because we do live in a world in which things don't always work out the way we want them to work out. Too many times we're thinking, well, it's going to change. We'll just wait. It'll get better and stuff. But you know, it doesn't always quite happen the way we think it's going to happen, does it? Someone once said, asking the question, what is life? Life is what's happening while you're waiting for life to happen. It's now. It's not when you think evil is going to go away or the situation is going to change or everything's going to get different or God's going to come through. It's now. Are you living by that faith to face things as they are? Notice the master is not at all worried about the tares. And the reason he's not worried about the tares is because he has said, this is God's field. This field belongs to me. And I'm the one who sowed the good seed. God is in control. And so then we go to this fourth part of the parable where the master shows what his great concern is. And that is his great concern is he says, don't take out the tares because you may hurt the wheat. He wants to develop the wheat and let it develop. But master, the tares will crowd out the wheat. I know. 
but let them grow together. It's for the good of the wheat. Master, are you saying that it is good that evil is left in the midst? And he says, trust me. It is better for the wheat that the tares are there. See, we need to be careful how we judge a situation. God is the only one who will ever judge rightly. And he says, I will. Vengeance is mine and justice is coming. It's interesting, R.C. Sproul says, when we sing Amazing Grace, he said, you know, it's not really grace we're amazed at because we think we deserve that. But it's justice we're amazed at. Why isn't there justice? I want justice. I want it done. It's why we like some movies and novels because the good guy always wins, right? Justice. But this isn't Christ's concern at this point. Not that justice doesn't occur in some places, which is wonderful. But the point here is this that God alone can discern what's truly good and what is truly evil. Only God knows the heart. If left up to us, we would have ripped out a lot of wheat clearing out what we thought was evil. And God says, no, let me do that. I remember a friend of mine, a woman came to him and said, Pastor, there was a man that came into my daughter's life we were very suspicious. We didn't like him, but she married him against our wishes. And true to what we thought, after a few years and two babies, he left her. And you don't know the pain that we've experienced. You don't know the pain we've had. If I could be God just one day, I would do it all over again differently. The pastor said, yes, and would God then say to you, if I changed all of that and did it all over, remember, you'd have to give up those two grandbabies. Oh, I don't know if I could do that. You see, there's good mixed with evil, as well as there's evil mixed with good. He alone will do what is right. Would you stop someone if you saw them trying to strike Jesus? If you would, you might have kept him from going to the cross. You see, God has his purposes. Randy Alcorn, in a book entitled The Goodness of God, highly recommended to it, he says this. We might think a good and powerful God should disarm every shooter and prevent every drunk from crashing. But if God did that, this would not be a real world in which people make consequential choices. It would not be a world of character development and faith building. It would not be a world where family members put their arms around one another to face life difficulties together. 
It would be a world where people went blithely along in life, happy to do evil as well as put up with evil, feeling no incentive to turn to God or to consider the gospel or to prepare for eternity. They would live with no sense of need and then die and find themselves in hell. He quotes Peter Ingram and says, if God simply canceled all the horrors of this world by endless, a series of endless miracles, he would thereby frustrate his own plan of reconciliation. And if he did that, we would be content with our lot and we would, should not even see a reason to cooperate with God. Evil. Now, how are we going to use this on Monday? Let's remember three things. First is this. Evil was there in the very beginning. That's why I read Genesis 2. But also, what you need to realize in Genesis 3, salvation was there in the very beginning. After Adam and Eve had fallen, God told them, there will come one who will crush the serpent's head. He's coming. He's coming. It's always been there. You see, whether we choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that's only what we see or understand, rather than the tree of life, which is what, the, what Jesus died for us to be able to have. He died on that tree of the knowledge of good and evil to take our curse for us. The scripture very clearly teaches us three things about evil. Number one, that God permits it. Number two, that God uses it. And number three, that God overcomes all of it. Think about Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery and he labored in prison. But later he told them, he said, you meant it for evil. And they did. But God meant it for good. I don't know how many times I've heard people who've gone through some of the most horrific things that several years later have said, it was really the best thing that ever happened to me. You see, evil is never good, but God never is out of control. Ultimately, God creates a greater good than would have been had, there, had evil not appeared. Second, even though we cannot fully understand why God allows evil, we do know what the answer is not. Tim Keller says, it can't be that he doesn't love us or is indifferent to us. Because God takes our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself at the cross. See, he's allowed nothing that he himself has not experienced. When we are tempted to say, God, why did you do that to me? Why did this happen and this evil happen in my life? We need to refocus ourselves on the cross and instead ask the question, God, why did you do that for me? Why did you die for me? I didn't deserve it, but you did. That's the focus of the cross. 
And then lastly, remember that the focus of this parable, as well as the others, is a focus on fruitfulness. It's not really an ultimate explanation of evil. It's just to understand what is is what is, and I have to face that. But the focus is on fruitfulness. And the question we must ask is, am I, are you focused on the harvest, on spreading the gospel as widely as possible, extending the kingdom for the purposes of God so it permeates everything, so it's seen as of great value, so it's seen as something that's going to grow into huge fruitfulness around this world? Or am I letting the tares and the evil pain that I have experienced in this life so take my focus away from the cross that I've lost what Jesus' concern is. His concern is for the wheat to develop and to protect it. So it ultimately comes sons and daughters of the kingdom who go forth and spread more seed that more daughters and sons might come to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great and mighty God, we thank you that there is nothing out of your control. And even when we look at things that seem so evil and we wonder why, but you tell us, trust me, I know it's hard. I know it's painful. I've experienced that pain through my son, Jesus. But keep your eyes on the good. Keep your eyes on the field. Keep your eyes on spreading the truth. That is the only hope for all of the suffering and evil we will face. And one day, I will remove all evil, all things, and I will bring justice to this world. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.